Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. You're listening to Rattlebag, coming today from the IFI in Dublin, and our distinguished guest tonight is a five-time Academy Award nominee, twice winner of the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival, has served as chairman of both Ardmore Studios and the Irish Film Board. He's also the author of Money Into Light, one of the best books ever written on the filmmaking process, which tells the harrowing tale of trying to get a film made in the South American jungle while your funding is collapsing around you in the Hollywood jungle. He's here in the IFI tonight to celebrate the launch of his autobiography, Adventures of a Suburban Boy. Would you please welcome John Borman. John, with a new film about to come out, you're editing a film at the moment, you weren't exactly scouting around for something to do, so was there a particular reason that you chose to write the autobiography now? Well, I, I wrote it, of course, some months ago, before I embarked on this latest film, and... I was becoming concerned that uh, I was approaching 70 uh, and uh, I thought I'd better write these things down before I forget them. I've always kept uh, journals since I was 16 and so I had a lot of uh, notes to draw on uh, and that's really what it comes from. The, the autobiography offers an opportunity to look backwards, to chart your career, to look back at your life. Did, did you find that process in any way difficult, looking back at some of those diaries and, uh, and perhaps some of the memories that weren't so pleasant? Well, I think that the act of writing, uh, I've always found writing to be revealing of myself. As, uh, when you write, you find yourself putting things down that you didn't know you knew. And the process of writing the book revealed all kinds of memories. And I do say, I, I discuss this in, early on in the book, that the relationship between memory and imagination and it may well be that imagination is more reliable than memory uh there's uh, i tell the story of when i was making hope and glory at one point being very self-indulgent i was looking through these examples of 30s wallpapers and i found the very wallpaper that we, we had in our living room and i had it made up we, we blocks and make it made up this wallpaper and put it into the set and my mother and her three sisters came to visit the set, and they were astonished at the accuracy of it. Uh, they had a few adjustments to make. One aunt said, well, no, I think, you know, Ivy always had a, some flowers in the window there, and, um, and, and the wireless was over here, uh, but, you know, they, they were very, basically very impressed with this set, which we built in the studio. Um, and then one of my aunts said, you've got it... It's been so accurately, it's astonishing that you could have remembered everything this way. What a pity you got the wallpaper wrong. <laughs> and whether it was her memory or mine that was lacking at fault, I, I shall never know. And did, did you ever wonder, okay, you had access to your own, to your own diaries and to memory in that sense, but did you ever wonder whether what you were writing actually happened the way you remembered it? Well, I think, first of all, in writing a book like this, uh, you have to write the truth, or at least I felt the truth was an imperative, because otherwise, why bother, really? Because you were trying to make a record of things that had happened to you. So I, 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 my intention was to be as truthful as possible, but, of course, memory is, is, is treacherous. And in particular, for instance, Hope and Glory, which was about my childhood, now is the kind of reality to me. The memories, the original memories that it was based on, have kind of faded 
and that, yeah, you know, hope and glory is the reality of it. So uh, this is a very mysterious area you enter into when you're dealing with dredging up memories and, uh, and the stories we tell of ourselves, the stories we tell and retell and polish, uh, they eventually um, become the, the, the reality and the, 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 the original memory tends to fade. And I know how treacherous, I mean, um, when I was making uh, a Deliverance, Burt Reynolds wrote an autobiography and I picked it up and read it and he, in it he described how when I cut the picture together I showed it to the actors and a few friends in uh, Los Angeles and we went to a party at my lawyer's house and he was living with Dinah Shaw at the time and when he got to the party everyone told him he was going to win the Academy Award for this one big scene alone where he this huge speech, gave this huge speech and I, he then describes how I came over to him and said, but I'm going to have to cut that speech. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it unbalances the picture. And so he got into his car with Dinah Shaw and they drove home and Dinah said, Bert, you're going to win the Academy Award for that one speech alone, you know. <laughs> and, and he said, John's cutting it <laughs> from the picture. And he said, we went home and we wept <laughs> together. <laughs> And so uh, I denied him his Academy Award. Well, there was such a speech in an early draft of the script. And in each successive draft of the script, I chopped this speech down. And what we shot was two lines. <laughs> so there's an example of memory and imagination. Uh, he's never forgiven me, you know. <laughs> so he remembers the script that popped through the letterbox yes. the first draft of it. The, the, you showed the script of, of Hope and Glory to your, um, to your, to your mother and mother and, and, and sister. My older sister. Yeah. And things that you had thought you had imagined, things that you thought were fictional, turned out not to be fictional. I mean, that's, the, the, again, the extraordinary, I don't know, synthesis or relationship between memory <clears throat> and imagination. Well, exactly. You know, I showed it to them, as to say, because I, you know, see if there's anything they objected to or had because it was very much about them. And uh, so it touched on my mother's relationship with my father's best friend. And also my sister's uh, was, you know, having um, wild sexual uh, uh, time with this uh, young French-Canadian soldier. And so as I was structuring the script, I put down, I started by putting down all the things I could remember, the incidents I remembered, and gradually then I started to st structure those things into, into, you know, into fiction, and I began to invent various things. And then it turned out that um, many of the things that I thought I'd invented had actually happened, particularly with, to with the sexual relations of my mother and my sister. They were absolutely shocked. How could this six-year-old boy ever have... Uh, been watching all these things going on through keyholes. Or... Um, just talk about some of the films, uh, not necessarily in sequence. I want to take them slightly out of sequence because I want to talk about the, the film you've chosen the audience here tonight to see, which is Point Blank. You had worked in Britain on films like Catch Me If You Can, which was uh, to those enduring pop legends, the Dave Clark Five, what help was to that rather more obscure combo, the Beatles. Um, so what brought you then to Hollywood 
to work with Lee Marvin on Point Blank. Well, this uh, producer gave me this script. Lee Marvin was shooting The Dirty Dozen in London at the time, and uh, he also gave it to Lee Marvin, and we met. And Lee said to me, what do you think of this script? And I said, well, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's all dreadful. He said, well, I agree with you. So what are we talking about? Meanwhile, this, Judd Bernard, this producer, was kicking me under the table. So I said, well, I, 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 you know, I was interested. The character was interesting and this situation. And uh, Anyway, he didn't stay long. He got up and left, and Judd Bernard berated me. He said, never demean your material. All you had to do was tell him how great the rewrite was going to be, you know? <laughs> anyway, we, he said, you, you know, you've got to call him. You've got to try and talk to him again. So I, I eventually did, and we met two or three times, and I described how I thought the film, what the film could be, and I gradually got to know him, and he talked about the war, which has, which had such an effect on him. He was a young soldier, 17, you know, fighting against Japanese, killing people, and uh, brutalised, really, by it. And uh, so I began to see, this film began to emerge in my mind as a kind of study of him, of someone who had, who had somehow lost his humanity in war and he was deeply scarred by it and although he you know made these extraordinary depictions of violence on film uh, he had this hatred of, of war and of violence. He, 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 he felt that America could only America was founded on genocide and, and really could only express itself through violence and he he was trying in his career to show what violence really was so we talked, and eventually, one night, we had a, quite a few drinks. It was about two in the morning. It was a summer's evening, and the window was open on this third floor f uh, flat that he had. And he said to me, OK, I'll do this movie with you, this flick. He always called them flicks. I'll do this flick with you on one condition. And he took the script, and he threw it out of the window. <laughs> and it fluttered down into the gutter. And, you know, a couple of years ago, Mel Gibson remade Point Blank, called Payback, and I was um, asked, did I know Payback, what did I think of it? And I had actually, they'd sent me the script, I read it, and uh, I said, well, uh, I told this story about Lee Marvin and the throwing the script out of the window, and I said, um, I can only, this, uh, this script for Payback bore an extraordinarily close resemblance to this terrible script, <laughs> and I, which Lee had thrown out of the window, and I said, I said, I, I said, I can only imagine a very young Mel Gibson was passing and picked it up out of the gutter. <laughs> um, Mel kept, uh, called me up and said, John, you've got to stop telling that story, because I, having told it once, I told it a number of times. <laughs> you, uh, you have compared working with Lee Marvin to war, to combat. Uh, you say that you know he was on your side, but you could get killed by friendly fire because he was the kindest, cruelest man. Uh, we'll find out in a moment, perhaps, how he was cruel. How was he kind? Uh, extraordinary uh, generosity. He's a man of uh, great insight. We were, when we were shooting Point Blank, we went up to Alcatraz right at the end of the shoot, and I was exhausted. We got, in, got to San Francisco late that night, and we were early morning in, in, in Alcatraz there, and I just couldn't... I blanked out. I couldn't figure out where to put the camera and how to break the scene down. I was just, uh, I just lost it. And he came over and he said, are you in trouble? And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. It didn't convince him. And suddenly he, 
he was standing by the wardrobe truck and uh, he started s singing and roaring and falling on the ground and, and the production manager came to me and said, he's completely drunk, you can't shoot on him like this, it's, it's impossible. Uh, which took the pressure off me completely, you know, and, and so I had five minutes on my, quietly, on my own, work things out, and I went over and said, I'm okay now. <laughs> and he, they were forcing black coffee into him, and, and he made this incredible recovery from total drunkenness to complete sobriety. That's the generosity. Uh, where did the cruelty come in? Uh, he could be very cruel to his children, I mean, in, and to his girlfriend he had at the time, he, if there was, people were insincere or uh, false, he was devastating. He hated any kind of uh, lies, really. He was, you know, uh, he was looking for the truth in, in every way, which I think is a characteristic of great acting, is that they're seekers after the truth. Uh, you then went on to make Hell in the Pacific with him, given what you've said about his attitude towards his war experiences and the brutalisation. It must have been difficult for him to make, the, or was it difficult for him to make that film? It was for both of them. Um, he, he'd fought um, in the Pacific. Uh, Mifuni, however, the closest he got to war, he was a quartermaster, and he, one of his jobs was to um, give uh, sake to um, kamikaze pilots before they left. Um, which is, you know, quite a slightly you know, second or third hand uh, combat, isn't it? It's an <laughs> but, interesting metaphor, though. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that was a kind of volatile mix, that picture. Uh, we had, um, I, I very foolishly chose to shoot it on a very remote island in the Palawan archipelago in the South Pacific. And... Uh, I could have shot it in Hawaii and could all have stayed in a nice hotel, but I'd, I was young and foolish, and uh, we, had, we lived on a ship, and the ship, it was a Chinese ship from Taiwan, and I had a Japanese film crew and, and a mixture of Japanese and Americans, and it was explosive mixture, and we had every sort of problem you could possibly imagine. I couldn't even fire people because I couldn't get them off the island. You know? <laughs> They've solved that problem on reality television, actually, uh, subsequently. <laughs> and um, um, I had, was having a terrible time with Mifuni for rather, rather complex reasons. I don't know if we've got time to Is describe the, it. The fact that he literally, even on a film set, you're all supposed to be on the same page, but it turned out he was on a different script. Yes, we'd done very many versions of this script and translating them back and forth into Japanese. And he was working from the wrong one. And I... <laughs> so... I had to correct him in front of this Japanese crew, which was a loss of face for him. So he, he just refused. To, uh, he just went on doing exactly the same thing. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it, was, it was absolutely dreadful. We used to shot, stop shooting, go back to the ship, argue, get drunk for hours, and then finally get him on the right page, and we go back the next day and shoot it. And when we got to the next scene, the same thing occurred. It was just debilitating, exhausting. Can I ask you, why was the film called Hell in the Pacific? <laughs> drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Welcome back. You're listening to Rattlebag, coming today from the IFI in Dublin, where we're talking to filmmaker John Borman about his autobiography, Adventures of a Suburban Boy. 
Deliverance, based on a book by James Dickey, and you collaborated together on the script, and then, then you, you cast him as the sheriff. But it was a rather intimidating experience for the cast, wasn't it? Well, he was an intimidating man. He was a very large man with these fiery eyes and a great poet. And he, he read his poetry brilliantly. You know, he, he, the first time I saw him reading his poem, read his poem and he, he'd, he'd stop and look up and say, ah, I wrote that. Uh, He he was so moved, you know, he he couldn't continue. And actually, the second time you saw him do it, exactly the same way, you know, rather (laughs) took something away. But we collaborated on the script and over a period of time, and finally I went to see him where he lived in Columbus, Georgia, and he said, after a few drinks, he took me on one side and he said, uh, I went there with my production manager, Charles Orme. And uh, uh, Dickie said to me, I'm going to tell you something. I've never told a living soul. Everything in that book happened to me. And I was, I was shocked, you know, because a man's killed and bodies buried and buggery. And, uh, so he made me promise not to tell anyone. <laughs> So, you were a man of your word. And so, naturally, I couldn't wait to tell somebody. Uh, and as we left his house, I said to Charles Orme, you'll never, never guess what he told me. And Charles said, yes, he told me the same thing. Uh, and uh, subsequently, uh, as we got into rehearsals, and he uh, told everybody. Um, and he arrived, he was sort of constantly drunk and... Uh, I had him attending the rehearsals and the actors were so intimidated because he kind of glared at them. And uh, in the bar, Dickie would um, say, um, come over here, boy, I want to talk to you. And call them by their names of the characters they were playing. And and it it was disastrous. So finally I said to him, look, Jim, uh, you can't attend the rehearsals anymore. But what we'll do is this. At the end of the day, you come in and we'll talk about what we've done. So, you know, like... Five o'clock, we'd see out of the window, we'd see him pacing back and forward. And then he would burst in at the appointed moment with some extraordinary comment like, you know, you realise how good this is? Better than good. You know, it would be, and they'd all be. So eventually I said, look, the actors just couldn't take it anymore. So I said, all right, I'm going to send him away. So I went up to the bar where he was having his uh, pre-lunch drink, drinks, and... uh, as I got up to the bar, the barman took me on one side. He said, you know, do you know what uh, Mr. Dickies told me? Everything in that book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I said, happened to him? He said, yes, you do? Um, and so I said to Jim, uh, look, you'll have to go. So he stood up, towered over me with these fierce eyes. You know, I thought he was going to hit me. And he said, if I'm going, I, I want to say goodbye to the boys. I said, okay. So we walked down in silence to the rehearsal room and we opened the door, went in, and he stood there and he stared at them and he said, it appears that my presence would be most efficacious by its absence. (laughs) And he turned on his heel and he left and and Bert said, does that mean he's going or he's staying? (laughs) 
The, the four central characters are wonderful, wonderfully played, wonderfully portrayed, but it was, it was difficult to cast, wasn't it? I mean, tell me some of the people who were being considered for, to, to, to get a balance amongst the four of them. Well, yes, when I was trying to make it, uh, the studio was very iffy about it, the Warner Brothers. They, they weren't sure whether it was commercial. and uh, So they said to me, OK, look, um, you've got to make it for a price and you have to get two stars. So... Jack Nicholson was got just very hot at that point. He made, um, you know, five easy pieces and easy rider. And so I went to Jack and he said um, he liked it and he would do it to play the part that was rigid, uh, Ed. So he said, what about um, Lewis? I said, well, I'm, you know, I haven't, I haven't decided yet. He said, well, you know who would be great? He said, is Brando. So because they were big friends, they lived next door to each other. So I went up to see Brando. We spent the afternoon together talking about this and that. I asked him, you know, who's the director he most enjoyed working with? Kazan? No. Michael Winner? Michael Winner, I said. <laughs> Why? He said, well, Michael Winner came to me and he said, Mr. Brando, you are a great actor. I am not a great director, so please do whatever you want. <laughs> So I tried to... <clears throat> Brando at that time had no, hadn't worked, he hadn't done um, uh, Godfather yet. And so he, he said uh, he'd take the same... Whatever I paid Jack, he'd take the same. And Jack's agent then stuck me for half a million dollars, which was a lot of money at that time. And the studio was so horrified that the idea... Well, they would refuse to pay Brando half a million dollars. So they said, OK, make it... Find some unknowns and do it with... So I went all around America looking for actors... I found, you know, Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox, who had never hadn't made a film, and then I eventually got Voight and Reynolds, and we managed to to do it. Then with Zardoz, you, you moved on to science fiction, a science fiction drama, high profile cast: John Connery, Charlotte Rampling. Uh, it's become a cult movie. Uh, an unusual choice after, I mean, you, you had had a huge hit with Deliverance, and this was something very, very different. Yes, uh, as someone once said it um, about the film, it started as a, a failure and became a, a, a classic without ever passing through success. Um, <laughs> but it, it, was a, it was a film that I was just looking at the world as it was and seeing how the rich were getting richer and the poor poorer and the rich were living longer and the poor were dying earlier. And this process, this was in 1973 and I think it, it, was, it turned out to be true, the, the gap was getting wider, and so the rich were able to afford expensive medicine, prolonging their lives, and so forth. And I projected this into the future, the notion that there would be these enclaves of the elite who discovered how to live forever, and outside would be these kind of brutal, almost animal-like uh, masses. And tell us the story about the final sequence, filming the final sequence, when you had to get a shot and uh, Sean Connery had to play a game of golf. Yes, well, the final shot in the film is um, Charlotte Rampling and, and Sean are sitting and they have, she has this baby and it's a fixed camera and you see them gradually ageing and getting older and eventually they're skeletons and they crumble into dust. And so it took an entire day to shoot because we had to take them out, change the makeup. Um, and Sean absolutely hated makeup. He hated his skin being touched. He was, he's, he's a very irritable person anyway, best of times. And 
much as I adore him. Um, and we went through this entire day to shoot this shot. We sent it off to the lab, and there was a fault in the stock. So it was the last thing we did in the film, and Sean was going off to this golf tournament, and I said we'd have to do it again. He was enraged and furious and enraged, and he, he, and, but we had to do it. And so it was a very... It was very testy the whole day where we did this all over again. And um, the assistant cameraman, Clapper Loader, went off with the film and he came back to me a moments later, white-faced, that he accidentally exposed it. <laughs> and so I had to tell Sean. <laughs> and, Is that uh, not what assistant directors are for? <laughs> well, there are some things they won't do. <laughs> so... Sean thought I was teasing, he wouldn't believe it. And finally, when I convinced him that we'd have to do it for a third day, he started frothing at the mouth, and he went off with a huge roar in pursuit of this clapper <laughs> And he chased him around the stage and, you know, took four large grips to restrain him. And uh, we did it again. And years, years later, I was in Los Angeles, and I saw this fellow, and he, I, I, he was kind of half recognised him, and he came over to me, and he said, um, it was him, it was the assistant cameraman, he, Clapper and he changed his name and gone to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was working as a cameraman, making commercials. And he, that, he told me how he, you know, he, he couldn't work. I mean, this story was so famous, infamous. <laughs> Uh, and you know, to, to open the can and expose the film, you know, how could you get another job as a clapper loader? So off he went, changed his name and started a new career. And um, so we had a nice chat and finally, as I was leaving, he said, Sean's not in town, is he? <laughs> <laughs> to move on to Excalibur, myths and myth-making seem to underpin an awful lot of your films, but Excalibur is a story that you are obsessed with for many years and obsessed with making, wasn't it? Yes, uh, the Arthurian legend, which I think, uh, you know, ev every nation has a myth, and this is the great Celtic myth, really, and uh, it's always fascinated me, and I tried various ways of making it, and, you know, foolishly, I decided to try and tell the whole uh, breadth and length of the myth, of, uh, of the legend, in one film, starting, you know, with pre-Arthur's birth and uh, where the, the savagery and going on through uh, the young Arthur into his, finally, into Camelot and then the collapse of Camelot and finally the, the quest for the grail, the wasteland. So I, I, and I always saw it as a kind of history of the world, you know, starting with men emerging out of the, the mud and civilization and then the collapse of civilization and the quest for the grail, which is to restore harmony. And it was really too much to put into one movie. In a sense, though, even though you were obsessed with making the movie, it took a long time before you were able to make it. You'd actually made it many times over because you, you use the Arthurian legend as a template when, when working on a script, don't you? Yes, I always go back to it, really, because there are so many stories in it and so many connections with the human psyche that are so accurate and that um, it's, a, it's a very good source. 
there was a young filmmaker at the time you were making Excalibur tagging along and he was shooting a film on the making of Excalibur, a man by the name of Neil Jordan. And you subsequently became the subject of controversy when the Irish Film Board, which you chaired at the time, funded Neil Jordan's debut feature, Angel, to an extent that aroused the, the anger of other Irish filmmakers. Now, your faith in Neil Jordan has obviously been vindicated many times over. What's, what's your take on that, that row today? Because I'm sure it must have left a bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. Yeah, it was very ugly, really, because um, I actually wasn't the chairman. I wasn't the chairman of the film board. I was a member of it, but... Um, it had been just been set up, and um, also Channel 4 had just started up. And Jeremy Isaacs, who founded Channel 4, wanted to make proper movies, not just not filmed TV plays. And he enlisted my help and, and others, other people's, and asked us to, to help them to do this. So I, um, I had been writing a script with Neil. I'd re- read his um, short stories. And I asked him to come and do a script with me, which we did together. We wrote a script together called Broken Dream, which I still haven't made. And uh, then when I started making Excalibur, um, I asked him to help on that. He helped me with, uh, did some work on the script with me. Not a lot, but uh, one or two very good ideas. And then I got him the job of shooting the making of, so he could get some experience with shooting film and he had this script uh, so I gave it to Jeremy Isaacs I said this I think could be good Channel 4 were nervous because he had no experience so he said we'll do it if you'll produce it which I did so the film board uh, awarded it some money not a lot because most of the budget came from Channel 4 uh, and um, everyone got upset about that because they thought uh, I'd somehow manipulated the situation and I was lining my own pocket which I wasn't doing, of course. I didn't. I didn't get a fee from the film. But um, it was, you know, difficult because a lot of uh, frustrated filmmakers have been trying to do films for years and years and years, and there'd be no funds and no way of getting them made, and they were naturally frustrated and resented this upstart Neil Jordan uh, getting in ahead of them. I pointed out, well, they didn't have scripts that um, that were being financed by Channel Four. Uh, so it was uh, slightly unpre- there was a you know there was a newspaper called the Tribune which still exists now but in a different form at that time and they wrote some scurrilous things about me so I sued them and um, they asked them to apologise which they didn't do and so I continued with my case against them and when they saw I was serious they published this article about me which was like an obituary saying that I was what a wonderful person I was. And, uh, <laughs> And I said, are you satisfied now? I said, no, I'm not really. It was, came too late, so I'm, going to, I'm still going to sue you. So they then said, um, came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, well, look, we don't have any libel insurance. Would you accept shares in the paper? <laughs> I said, no, I don't want shares in your lousy paper, no. Um, so another two weeks went by, and they came back and said, um, would you like the paper itself as payment? <laughs> The problem was it came with two million quid's worth of uh, <laughs> debts. <laughs> thank you, but no thank you. 
the the Emerald Forest. Now, one of one of the themes of your work is the clash between man and nature. You can see it in Deliverance and other movies. But in the Emerald Forest, you had a real clash between between man and nature, didn't you? Storms and sickness threatening the actual production. You described that the trials involved in finding the money and in keeping the money in the Money into Light, which in, in my book is one of the, along with something like Adventures in the Screen Trade, one of the, the, the best books written about the process of, of, of filmmaking, of getting a film onto screen. And my memories of that book are that in it, film sounds like a series of betrayals and compromises. Is it, is it always like that, or was that just a particularly bad experience that you had? It's always like that, really. I mean, you, you, you know, film is the art of the possible. You, 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 and the more and the clearer your vision of a film is, uh, the more disappointing the shooting of it, because inevitably you, you never quite achieve what you were looking for. When you first, you know, Jean-Luc Godard said to me once, you know, you have to be young and foolish to make a movie. Uh, if you know as much as we do, it's impossible. And in a sense, that's right, because you, as you get more experienced, you can foresee the problems, you can, and you're you, you perhaps uh, more cautious. Um, if you don't know anything, you can blunder into it and sometimes come out the other end uh, with uh, you know, something wonderful. Sometimes actors can take you somewhere else, which can be wonderful. Actors can do something which, which is better than you ever imagined. And that's, uh, those are the great moments when the actors actually um, transcend the material and surprise you in wonderful ways. With the, the general, you could see the general as part of your, your, your Celtic trilogy along with Zardoz and Excalibur, but in, in more ways than one because you actually see a thematic connection between Martin Cahill and uh, the Arthurian legend, for example, again. Yes, I think that the, the, ga- the interesting thing about these gangs, gangsters, really, is that they are tribal. And that, you know, particularly, I think, I saw Cahill as being in the line of kind of Celtic chieftains in the way that he behaved, you know, the, that somehow this, um, this wit and this uh, invention and this uh, cruelty and violence and at the same time um, imagination that he seemed to me to belong to a tradition somehow. And uh, one of the things that has interested me in many of these films is, is this notion of, of tribe. And it's only a very short time since we were all living in tribal situations. And we are still, those are still our instincts are really tribal. That's why movie making is so attractive to people, even though you may have to suffer and work long hours and it's still a tribal situation. And we respond to that. Uh, and that's certainly in th- those three films, they were all very much influenced uh, by Ireland and Irish people and Irish actors and, and who responded to that notion. Though you were criticised at the time for being too soft on Martin Cal, for giving too rosy picture, a picture of the life of Martin Cowell. Do you still defend the film that you made on that on that basis or against that specific criticism? Well, I showed him doing very cruel things, you know, nailing someone to a pool table, and it was it was an accurate picture of a man. Uh, he did have um, all those characteristics which I showed. He was he was quite extraordinary, and in another life and another background, another upbringing, he could have been you know, a successful person in a more 
uh, reputable field. You never met Martin Carroll, but you actually had him round to the house once, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, there was uh, many years ago, about probably 25 years ago. Um, he, um, my house was robbed, and by a discerning person who took only um, very valuable things and left everything else in his place. And, uh, the, and the guards told me at the time that it was him. And amongst the things he took was this uh, gold record that I had for the music of Deliverance, dueling banjos. And he obviously thought it was gold instead of you know, just gold paint sprayed onto a vinyl record. And so I put that scene into the film. I thought it made a nice connection between my own experience <laughs> of him and the film itself. This would have happened perhaps on the way back from Rusborough House or to and from Rusborough One House. One of those occasions. Mm. Why did you film it in black and white? Curious. Well, I think all films should be in black and white, really. It's the, it's the nature of film. Um, it, and, and I think the reason why film swept the world in the way that it did in those few years at the beginning of the century, um, when um, you think that Charles Chaplin uh, was... Uh, five years after arriving in Hollywood, was the most famous man in the world and the richer and the mo most highly paid because silent films transcended language barriers and the fact they were in black and white connected them to the notion, to the state of dreaming. I, we tend to dream in black and white and it was like dreaming. And I remember D.H. Lawrence in The Lost Girl describes how um, her father had this little... A vaudeville theatre and he had live acts and he started showing films to the Nottingham miners and he describes, Lawrence describes how when they were watching the live acts they were kind of embarrassed, they would glance up at them and they'd have these sort of embarrassed grins on their faces and, but when they showed the films that the men uh, looked as though they were entranced, their mouths were open and they stared at the screen and there is something you know, trance-like about the watching a film, particularly black and white and I think that that's one of the reasons why film became, just um, swept the world and became what it is. John Borman, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That's it for Mattelbag for today. The programme was produced by Kevin Reynolds on Sound Was Tony Lyons. Until tomorrow, bye-bye. Drama on One. Sundays at 8 pm. RTA.ia forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.